Hi, everybody. My name is Mark Graben from Kinexus. I want to welcome you to our webinar today titled How to Get Buy-in for Improvement. And this is Greg Jacobson. I'm really looking forward to this. Thanks so much for coming. So our topic today, and you know, as Greg and I were preparing about this, we had a lot to talk about. It's a really rich topic. This question of buy-in, because we get asked about this a lot uh, by our customers and, and people out there in general. And it usually comes up in the context of a lack of buy-in. And you know, you see the emoji face here. People are frustrated by that. Um, it's a problem people are trying to solve. And it's, I think, a really common frustration in the context of big initiatives, ways we're trying to change our organization. So we're trying to think of, of buy-in. We're going to talk a little bit about you know, why there's a lack of buy-in and what is buy-in and you know, how to solve that. I think it's um, ripe for, for continuous improvement experts to, to really have a great grasp of this topic. So, so we hear you know, complaints uh, about you know, a lack of buy-in about lean as a methodology. And you, you can find articles online that talk about a lack of buy-in to Six Sigma or whatever type of approach. This was an article um, that, that referenced an ASQ study that said, you know, some hospitals are seeing benefits from Lean and Six Sigma, but the organizations that are not kind of point to a lack of information, which can lead to, I think, very naturally a lack of buy-in or a lack of leadership buy-in. You know, fingers get pointed in different directions. Staff don't buy in, leaders don't buy in, executives don't buy in. This is a really uh, common problem to try to solve. So we can ask why, and I think this is a good lean habit. If we're, what we're describing is a lack of buy-in, well, to ask why. And again, I think it's often a lack of awareness and understanding of lean. People often have a very uh, kind of gut level response. They hear the word lean and it sounds bad. Right. Instead of those of us who have really practiced this and lived through it and realize that lean is a very positive thing, the word can be scary or the unknown can be scary. And we often hear people when they think of lean, oh, well, you know, that's a manufacturing or an automotive principle that couldn't apply to hospitals. It's funny, Mark, you know, we're talking um, right now to an, an automotive company and, and they're looking at our software and say, well, wait a minute, hold on. These are some healthcare people. How could it apply to automotive? And right. so um, really one of the things that we constantly hear is this complete um, disconnect between the fact that, you know, this is improvement science and, and mm -hmm. not only can the improvement science be applied to any company in any industry? But we were just talking earlier today how we're actually applying it in our personal lives as well. Right. So, yeah. And it's not on the list of bullet points, but uh, what I call weird differentism pops right. in. <laughs> weird different in whatever way. But, you know, people often don't understand the need for change, which I think is a more fundamental concern than, you know, are we going to embrace lean? Well, you know, why? Why lean? What's the, the, the compelling case for change? There might be fear and anxiety about layoffs, either because of the word lean and connotations to that, or that layoffs may have been happening in the past. Uh, that would be understandable concern. Um, disagreement over what problems to solve. And I think very often we see misalignment about goals, which again, I get a different way of stating the question of, well, why does this matter? Why are we implementing lean? And at least the last two, probably three of these bullets, I think, are really byproducts of not understanding lean, right? I mean, if you're doing, quote, lean or improvement science in the right way, then, you know, goals should be aligned. Mm -hmm. um, I would argue that if goals are aligned, then it really starts to address what problems should be solved. So 
a lot of this has to do with kind of being aware, doing things in an intentional and a meaningful way, and uh, doing it in the right way. Mm-hmm. You will create all the buy-in that you need. Yeah, and we'd love to hear some of your responses here about why do you think there's a lack of buy-in. Um, you can put that into the chat box in the uh, the webinar control panel. But you know, it's not just about lean and methodologies. We hear complaints about you know there's a lack of buy-in for certain types of software. Uh, back in the day, ERP systems and manufacturing, uh, EMR, EHR systems in healthcare. This is just one article that we found, and you can see a quote here. You know, it's easy for one person to derail a project if they feel it's threatening or if they don't understand why it's done. Well, that to me sounds like a lack of buy-in stated in a different way. We have to help people understand why a change isn't threatening if they're afraid that it is. And if they don't understand why the change needs to happen, that's a very kind of fundamental point to try to address to gain more buy-in. And so really buy-in is just a component of change management. And change management, once again, can apply to lots of places in your lives. And we're going to talk a lot about it with regard to introducing a continuous improvement culture. But a lot of these same principles will work when you're doing things like rolling out a large software product mm-hmm. or when you're trying to get your four-year-old to, you know, do something you want them to do, like take a bath at night, you know. <laughs> they don't understand why that needs to be done. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> um, but we can ask and step back and think about, you know, lack of adoption for systems. You know, Greg is a doctor. Um, you know, deals with computer systems uh, as a clinician. And we hear common complaints. People say, well, you know, I don't have time to use that system. We weren't involved in choosing the system as a common complaint, especially around EMR, EHR systems, lack of training if organizations have underinvested in the training and people just don't know how to use the system effectively. People say that the system doesn't work well or it's too slow, which gets in the way of people really buying in. Or they'll say, again, this happened a lot with ERP, that the system doesn't fit, it's not compatible with our workflows and the way we do things here. So I think whenever we have that quote-unquote resistance or lack of buy-in, we need to understand why and realize that lack of buy-in is often a symptom. I think when we talk about lean and problem solving, we often coach people if we say our problem is the lack of something that we don't really understand the problem well. Buy-in here, I think we're saying, we have a lack of it. Well, then what buy-in is a solution. Well, wait a minute. There, there's sort of a, a gap in our thinking. We need to understand the underlying problems and then understand what we can do to eliminate those problems, which then I think leads to buy-in as an end result. I, I think really anyone, especially listening to this kind of topic, understands the pain of trying to create a change and then trying to create that buy-in. And this is just an example of what a lack of buy-in, why that might be occurring with software. You could apply this really to any type of thing that you're trying to, quote, roll out or, you know, roll up or one of those roles. Yeah. Yeah. But, <laughs> but if people are feeling rolled over, over right, that's exactly. <laughs> where we often have a lack of buy-in. So, you know, we, we're talking about buy-in and, you know, it used to be people would say, well, you know, Webster's Dictionary defines blank as, well, now people jump to Wikipedia. It's a bit of a presentation cliche, but you know, I think, try to see if we're all on the same page. It's the commitment of interested or affected parties to a decision, you can call these people stakeholders, to quote unquote, buy into the decision. That is to agree to give it support, often by having in, been involved in its formulation. I think there's a couple of really juicy words here that people agree 
that they give their support. We can't force people to buy in. They, they choose to give support. And you know, by being involved in the formulation of an idea, that right in and of itself um, creates buy-in. That's my experience. Yeah. I did a lot of, Mark and I were talking about this. This was a really fascinating topic for me. Had to do a lot of research, did a lot of reading. But one of the things I took away from, from what I did to prepare for this was it's almost as if buy-in is the currency of change management. You know, And the more yeah. buy-in you have, the easier it's going to be. Obviously, the more money you have, the easier it is to purchase a house or you know to transact in the economy. So think of buy-in as the currency of change management. Yeah. And we'll come back to that point later of, of what it means for individuals to buy in and what that leads to for an organization agreeing or buying into something. So we can ask again, you know, why? Um, not just why is buy-in important, but why don't we have buy-in? Why is there a lack of buy-in? As we've alluded to, is there more of a root cause problem underneath? So instead of just looking at the surface of a problem. Again, I think this is good lean problem solving. We don't just see a symptom. Well, you know, people are grumbly, they're not bought in. The countermeasure isn't to say, well, you all need to buy in. Um, we need to understand um, why. And again, solve those underlying problems. So we can ask again, well, if there's a lack of buy-in, um, you know, people are often upset because they weren't involved. The change yeah. has been thrust upon them or it surprises them. And, and it's interesting, we use the word upset here. We're gonna talk a little bit um, later in the webinar about emotions. Mm -hmm. And there's actually some biology that we're starting to understand with functional MRIs that really start to give us some insight into why something like you know being changed or asking to do a change elicits an emotional response mm -hmm. versus a cognitive or a rational response. Yeah. And so there's yeah. some really interesting things here of, of using that word. Yeah, and I think we said that specifically as opposed to saying uh, people disagree with the change or something that seems a little bit more reasoned or rational. There can be a rational, um, logical uh, reason behind not buying in, but you're right. Sometimes it's just uh, it's it's an emotional reaction. We have to recognize that we're we're human. We're not Vulcans, right? People weren't <laughs> presumably presumably. Um, we, you know, people weren't consulted. They weren't respected. And I think this kind of all flows together. You say, well, if we're not involving people, not asking them their their thoughts and and, and, and getting them to participate people are going to walk away from that feeling disrespected we don't want a situation sometimes here people say well we want employees to feel like they had input and i always try to say wait a minute time out it's not a feeling it's right. a it's a we want them to actually have input right right i, I would argue that they weren't respected if they didn't have input yes right. yeah so when we involve people there's a great expression that comes from, we've used it before in webinars, but I just always come back to this. Peter Schultes, um, the late management professor, said it very uh, pithily. Uh, people don't resist change, they resist being changed. Having things forced upon them. There's, I think, this natural reaction where I've, I've always kind of paraphrased it as, you know, people don't like to be told what to do. We're free thinking adults, and there's, there's sort of a, a visceral reaction if, if I were to say to Greg right now, Greg, uh, get up and switch chairs with me. They're like, well, why? There's no good reason for that. Don't right. tell me what to do, right? Don't waste time in the webinar. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
So I think, you know, when we think about the phrase buy-in, it's interesting. Buying to me implies a two-sided voluntary transaction. Somebody has an idea that they're selling, or you might even say offering for sale, um, and that somebody chooses to buy. And I think a lot of times that the seller of the idea is trying to force it on others and they get upset when somebody chooses not to buy, which I, I think, you know, in most other settings, um, a store is upset because I didn't buy a sandwich from them. It's lunchtime. I'm, I'm hungry. Well, well, no, I don't want to buy the sandwich. Don't get upset at me for making that choice. Right? I think if we start thinking of buying and framing it as a kind of buy sell transaction, you end up creating a greater framework for for not only short-term success, but long-term success, because mm -hmm. you start talking about things like, well, why? And you start talking about, well, what, what are your needs from this transaction? And um, I think this is gonna kind of, we're gonna start kind of moving from, you know, we don't have enough buy-in to what is buy-in to, why don't we have enough of it? And then start for the next, you know, 20 or so minutes, talk about frameworks of how we could think of this to actually get more buy-in and be more successful with what. Yeah. you're trying to accomplish at your organization. Yeah. So one of the lessons, and to just re-emphasize this, don't blame the person who's not buying. There is one of my favorite um, quotes, or it's, it's actually a tweet that uh, a friend of mine from England, Stephen Perry, who's been very involved with lean and the service sector, said, the, the resistance to change is proportional to your lack of leadership. And that, that's kind of a harsh statement. Like if you think, well, I'm trying to get people to change and they're being resistant, well, ouch, that, that stings a little bit. But I think, I think there's a lot of truth there. Um, if people are resistant, we need to understand why, we need to communicate, we need to engage people. Those are all, I think, functions of leadership. Right, and, and, and this might be nuanced, but you know, I think that some resistance is probably really healthy if you handle it in the right way, right? If you're getting the resistance and your your take is to just roll over it to, you know, to put the car buyer's head in the hood, if you will, then then obviously that's a lack of leadership. But yeah. if the resistance to change ends up creating respect for the person, ends up creating more dialogue, ends up creating a better understanding, ends up creating a why, then I think it, it provides, you know, a really good opportunity mm -hmm. to um, to do kind of change management or to gain buy in the right way. Yeah, and I'll drop a different Stephen's name here. Uh, Stephen Covey would talk about seek first to understand. When we see resistance, don't say shame on you for being resistant. Right. There's often a very um, understandable underlying cause to that. And we're, we're gonna come back um, to some of the questions you can ask to help understand um, what, what's happening when there's resistance. Um, John Cotter, you know, from Harvard, of course, has written a lot about change and organizations. And one of his books, The Heart of Change, which just share this quote here, you know, that we need to engage hearts and minds, that people change what they do less because they're given analysis that shifts their thinking. There's the logical realm. Then because they're shown a truth that influences their feelings. Behavior change happens in highly successful situations, mostly by speaking to people's feelings. Now, as an engineer, I get sort of uncomfortable, what's our feelings? What do you mean? We do things because it's rational, but that's my engineer brain talking. And I've, I've had to learn throughout my career that that feelings and emotion and engagement means just as much, if not more, than having a, a rationally, logically correct answer that you're gonna to try to prove to others. I think what we're seeing in, in um, 
Dr. Mark Jabin, who has been on our blog uh, a bunch, and actually in a couple slides we're going to talk about um, him at more depth. But um, and he's going to be giving a, a webinar here um, in May. In, in May, which I'm going to highly recommend because it really is going to take a deep dive into the biology of what's going on here and why we actually should be thinking about this in an emotional way. But what we're starting to understand is that you know our beliefs are held in what's referred to as the hidden brain, you know, the subconscious, if you will, mm -hmm. an area that we don't have a lot or any access to in our kind of frontal precortex brain where we're doing a lot of our rational thinking. So when yeah. someone says something to you right away and you immediately have that visceral response to it, then you start understanding, oh, well, there's actually some biology that explains this. Mm -hmm. And and I think that, that that's exactly what, um, what we're referring to in this quote. Yeah, you know, feelings matter, and even you know, people I've learned from that came out of Toyota talk about the need to engage hearts and minds. I was at a patient safety conference recently, and doctors were talking about the need to use data and stories to help engage people in, in this challenge of improving patient safety, which I, I, I think is really wise. So you know, we could step back and think about a lack of buy-in, and I think sometimes just how we initially frame situations makes a difference. We, we can ask which of these two statements is going to create more buy-in in an organization? You know, say, let's go implement lean. Uh, people might say, no, thank you. Sure. Why? I don't care. That sounds weird. That's scary. Not interested. Doesn't apply to my <laughs> industry. Oh, someone tried that five years ago. It didn't work. They're, you know, going into pattern recognition from, mm -hmm. you know, way deep in their brain and not really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Or, We'd say, let's improve patient flow or let's improve X. I think that's a far more engaging question. Kind of start with the, the problem statement, the reason why, find something where there's a shared interest. Well, then we might be able to introduce lean as a way of addressing that common goal. Right. And, and here you see what we've done is kind of really switched it to a belief. You're not going to work in a healthcare organization and not want to improve patient flow. You're not going to work in a food and produce organization and not want to deliver, you know, really great oranges. Mm -hmm. You could apply that to any industry that you're talking about versus this, um, oh, well, let's talk about some kind of methodology that doesn't really apply to any belief system that you already have that you're bringing to the organization. Yeah. So, so let's think about a situation that's a little bit more detailed. Organizations often say, well, let's implement 5S. <laughs> and People say, well, why? I don't care. Or we're implementing the tool in a way that's not really um, seen as helpful. Or if we say, let's make our work easier and less frustrating. That's something that generally people will buy into. And 5S, when it's done well, can really contribute to that goal, making it easier to find what we need in the workplace, um, re reducing the, the number of hoops we're having to jump through every day so that we can do a better job for the customers and the people we're serving. I think as improvement scientists, and you're going to see that I'm always going to give the biologic kind of explanation and, and look at this as a science and, and Mark's coming at this from the process improvement kind of a realm. But I think as improvement scientists, we would be better off simply not even using words like bias. Mm -hmm. You know, just let's, let's, you, you can infuse the right way to do things in a kind of subtle manner where you don't have to get bogged down in the terminology and right. really just focus on making work easy and less frustrating. And for me, that phrase improvement science is not something I heard before I got into healthcare. For those of you outside of healthcare, I'm curious, you can give us feedback in the chat box or 
through a question. That to me, I associate that phrase with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Mm -hmm. But they've learned from uh, Deming and the Quality Movement, and they apply uh, the PDSA cycles, and they frame a lot of that as improvement science, which I think is a great phrase because there are many aspects of lean and process improvement that are based on basic uh, scientific thinking, scientific problem-solving models. So we're going to talk about uh, buy-in from you know, different groups of stakeholders and organization. We often focus on frontline staff or employees because their buy-in is critically important. They are the vast majority of an organization, but yet there are often a lot of complaints about, well, our staff, our employees are not buying into X. And actually, not only are they the vast majority of the staff of an organization, They've actually done studies, and the vast majority of the improvement potential in an organization is sitting in the frontline staff. So right. figuring out how to harness that, how to you know get that out of its shell, is really critical to an organization to going from you know good to great, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I've worked with organizations, I've found one way to really get buy-in from the get-go mm -hmm. is to ask employees to engage them in a discussion. Um, the slide here, it comes from some work I did back in about 2008, microbiology lab in a hospital. We started a, a project, and we, we the first thing was to sit down with a number of the microbiologists and staff with this very open-ended question, what problems are we going to be solving? You know, management that sponsored the project had some notion, or they, there wouldn't be a project. But to start here and talk to people, they said, we want to solve the problems of our workloads and overtime being too high. Um, working too much overtime, increased stress and pressure. And you know what, that was in alignment with what the hospital wanted to accomplish. They articulated that time was being wasted, that they don't have time to do research or training, which is important to them, that we need to focus on the system instead of blaming individuals, and we need to improve productivity in a way that maintains the focus on quality. This was elicited from the staff as opposed to us trying to tell them what problems we were going to solve. And I think this started that whole initiative in a way that said, we're working with you. This is a partnership um, as opposed to forcing people to change. I think a lot of times people get far down the road into a project and they recognize, oh, wait a minute, we don't have buy-in. And mm -hmm. I think at that mm -hmm. point, it's maybe too late. You've got to start building that buy-in from day one. And this can be one way of doing that. I'll tell you what I don't see here. I don't see, oh, we need to go implement lean, but right. we need to do more of that 5S stuff, right? So just kind of keep that in mind. Yeah. So one thing we discovered in, in doing a lot of reading and research and discussion about buy-in, uh, Professor uh, Mitchell Lee Marks has five questions that we can ask related to buy-in. And the first says, or asks, are you showing your employees that you understand the difficulties they will face. So I think this recognizes that, yeah, change is hard. Change requires a lot of personal uh, reflection and transformation and that this isn't easy and we need to be sensitive to that rather than trying to pretend that change is easy and hey, you need to just get on board. Mm -hmm. Number two, are you giving the employees the information they need to understand the case for change? And I think this leads into this idea that people give support, that people choose to buy in. And if we keep people in the dark about the problem or the methodologies that we're trying to use, they can't give that buy in. They're just going to react and, and be upset, and that's understandable. 
And I think what's amazing here is that you can frame business case really, I think, to anyone in an organization. I'm not saying that you, you know, they need to spend a week and understand all the numbers and you know, become experts in accounting. But um, for the scope of, of what you're trying to accomplish, let's say in an emergency department or on a factory floor that's you know, doing a certain part, you can give them the critical things. Hey, we're, we're doing this. We need to do that. Our satisfaction scores are here. We need them to be here. I mean, you can kind of break right. things down in a, in a frame of reference that they can actually go, okay, I get that. Yeah. You know, I can, I can work towards that goal. And that business case for change doesn't just mean, quote, unquote, business case and ROI. Right. The right. case for change of the organization, I think, is another way of saying that. Uh, number three, are employees being given the opportunity to express and discuss their feelings about the transition? Mm. So, again, as the engineer, I, I, early in my career, I would step back and said, what do you mean feelings? Mm. But this is important to understand people's uh, reactions, even in improvement situations where we know the future is going to be better. People often feel a sense of loss. And they have to go through some cycles of, of grief in a way to go through to get to a point where they accept change. And this gets back to the biology, right? So what we're, what we're discussing and what we're finding is that a lot of these decisions and, and feelings are originating in the amygdala, in the, in the hidden brain, in the part of the, the, the earlier parts of the brain where if you start challenging that, people are going to feel this flight or fright response. And, and that's where that emotion comes in. So being able to kind of address that and being able to bring that to the surface and then being able to discuss really small experiments off of that is what's going to make someone feel comfortable and accepting to go, okay, I can, I can start to deal with this type of thing versus, versus, uh, you know, the, the, you had given the example, if, if a tiger is coming at you, that's a lot to process, but if a leaf is coming at you, you can kind of wrap your hand, your head around that and go, okay, well, let's see how we can do that. So just kind of keep in mind here that what we're, what we're seeing here is that there's some biology that explains, you know, this resistance um, and, and the feelings that are occurring. This isn't just, you know, people trying to be difficult to work with. Right. We need to understand those feelings right. so we can work through them rather than saying, don't have those feelings. Right. Or, or rolling over them. People yeah. love when they're told, don't have those feelings. Right, right at work or in a relationship, right? Question four, are you inspiring employees with a detailed vision of the future and what matters in getting there, maybe the plan, and providing practical and emotional support as they work out their new role? So I think it's an important role for leaders is to not just say, do this, but we need to help inspire people that the future is gonna be better and here's how we're gonna get there together. And number five, are you involving employees at every level in translating the vision into new ways of doing things. I mean, number five, this is to me the money one. You know, I mean, this is this is what what we're all about. This is when we're working with customers, we see the ones that are most successful. They're doing five really, really well. Yeah. So as Professor Marks says, well, you know, what are your answers to these questions? If you answered no to any one of these questions, you're not doing everything you can to ensure success. So it's a you being a leader or a change agent. Again, you know, you've got to look in the mirror and, and reflect and say, what can I be doing differently to get people on board instead of just saying, hey, get on board. So we can think about uh, physicians. I'm going to turn things over to Greg here as a doc. Uh, how do we get them to buy in? So Mark asked me, people really struggle with getting physicians to buy into improvement work. And, and he said, can you please come up with 
you know, something to say on this. And I thought about it for the last week and I was thinking, gosh, you know, there is nothing unique about positions um, and getting them to buy in that is any different than any other staff or any employee, because guess what? Positions are just people. <laughs> Positions are people too. <laughs> Positions are people too. <laughs> Write that down. That's a doctor saying that. Yeah. So, you know, what we ended up discovering um, over the last 10 years and me, me working with this is that, you know, physician, you could literally change the word physicians here um, with uh, Margaret Wheatley's quote, physicians support what they create, mm-hmm. right? If you, if you go to the physicians and you ask them to participate, if you give them the vision, if you try to break things down into small incremental changes, if you allow them to participate in a way that works with their workflow, right? Hey, mm-hmm. we need you to take a, a week off work to work on an improvement um, event. That's not going to work. You know, hey, we could we could just use an hour every morning. We could use a four-hour block um, every sixth Monday. There's we could interact with this in Kinexus and, and give us virtual, you know, um, asynchronous feedback. There's lots of different ways to engage physicians. Physicians want to improve. Yeah. I mean, physicians were we are fanatical about being efficient. We're fanatical about you know getting A's. Getting A's in the patient world is taking great care of our patients. Right. So. Um, no, there's nothing different about physicians than any other employee. Yeah, I see executives sometimes uh, far too often blaming doctors for not being on board. Our doctors aren't engaged. And I always ask, well, what are you doing to engage them? Engagement or buy-in doesn't just magically happen. It's something that we've got to work toward. And so I, I, I hinted on, on, on Dr. Jabin's um, work with um, really understanding kind of the neuroscience and He's really uncovered a whole bunch of different research that I think explains a lot in the continuous improvement Kaizen lean models. And this is a great podcast um, that Mark did with him back in 2014. It's done about seven blogs on our blog series. He has a book coming out very shortly, and he also is going to be doing a webinar here in May. And I highly recommend especially if you're biologic in nature in any way and, and you like biology and understanding kind of human nature, to, to take a look at, at some of the work he's putting together and really, I think, putting a lot of science together in a really palatable, consumable way mm-hmm. that we can start using to become better at eliciting you know, buy-in from people. But there's some real biology in getting people out of their hidden brain into the prefrontal cortex and then really moving them into that right side as he kind of has his visual, the right side of where real creative and innovative thinking. Mm-hmm. And along the way of figuring out how to get there, it explains a lot on why people are resistant and how we can start getting rid of that resistance mm-hmm. or really addressing that resistance in a productive way. Yeah. So, you know, Greg talked to this as a physician. I'll talk to this as somebody who's been a manager uh, in my career. How do we get manager buy-in? Well, I'll, I'll say the obvious again, managers are people too. Really? Yes. And we can step back and ask you know, a summary of those same five questions. If we ask, you know, managers are not buying in to continuous improvement as we work with our customers and we work with others. Do the managers understand? Do we understand the difficulties the managers are facing in embracing new ways of interacting with people? Do they understand what they need to do? Do we have a good vision? Are we working with them when they say, you know, it's really hard coaching employees instead of giving them answers? And really working with people, I think managers go through the same process mm-hmm. and struggle as any individual would. And we need to 
kind of be understanding and ask, well, if the managers are quote unquote not buying in, we need to understand what's there beneath the surface. Yeah, I mean, think about where they are. They're sandwiched between kind of the senior leadership above them. The if you if you look at it in that kind of hierarchical you know diagram, the 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 staff frontline folks uh, below them, and so an area that um, I would not want to be in. Yeah, a manager. But um, asking these same five questions, I think, makes a lot of sense. And and real quick, I see that we're getting closer to our Q&A time. Mark, do you want to just tell everyone how they can start putting up questions for Q&A to yeah, remind well, people? Uh, again, there you have a go-to-webinar control panel that should appear on your screen. We've got a couple questions, but you can go ahead and enter uh, a question there, and we will address those here in a few minutes. That's sometimes the most interesting part of these webinars, so yeah. please keep them flowing. Yeah. So we, it's funny, we have fingers pointing often sort of down in the organization. Executives will blame physicians or point fingers at employees or managers that they don't buy in. I often hear in the other direction, and it's not really helpful. It's dysfunctional in either direction. Employees will often point at their executives and say, well, they don't buy in. They don't get it. To any of this. And, mm -hmm. and so we can ask why or what can we do? I think as change agents, a lot of people in the audience here are in that kind of awkward, difficult middle ground where they're trying to not only help staff get buy-in, they're mm -hmm. trying to manage up and get right. their executives to buy-in. And we did a webinar back in 2014 um, with Alan Wilson, who had been, who's been a great friend of Kinexus. He's been an advisor. He was our CEO for a period of about a year. Did this webinar that you can find in our archive titled How Continuous Improvement Helps the C-Suite Sleep Better. And you know, Alan in that webinar had a few keys to communicating with the C-suite. What's amazing is, is if you take a look at the points that, that Mark's going to go through here, you're going to hear a very similar theme. <laughs> I mean, there, there, there isn't much to buy-in. It doesn't mean that it's easy to do. I mean, just because you know, it, you can you can wrap your head around this, and you know, a, it's not rocket science. Um, it it does take practice, and getting it right. You know, it doesn't always happen right away, but you'll see that there's some a similar theme here. And, and I'll say, because it should be said, executives are people too. Because <laughs> executives have, have feelings and emotions, and, and they get scared and defensive right. um, just the same as, they as have anybody can. They, huh? they have an, an amygdala. They do have an amygdala. <laughs> so Alan asked, you know, what keeps them up at night? We need to understand what are the concerns and challenges around the lines of, well, what problems do executives need or want to solve? Alan recommended don't sell lean and continuous improvement as being merely, oh, well, it's the right thing to do. Executives need something a little bit more to grab onto than um, the feeling that, yeah, we should do this. Well, well, why? That was the point that we said earlier. Oh, let's just go do lean. Mm -hmm. Yay. No. That doesn't really work in any direction. Right. Um, Alan says, you know, link these different initiatives to strategy whether that's embracing lean or adopting software, we need to understand how is this tied to what the organization is trying to accomplish. Articulate the impact, not just return on investment, but the non-financial impact that matters as well. Um, it, it's got, even for an executive, there's more to it than dollars and cents. And then I think the final point, and this is, I think, especially important, to executives and high-performing organizations that they're really concerned about how do we leverage talent? How do we develop people within the organization? Because that's ultimately where long-term success is going to come and, from. And this talks about the 
where is the improvement potential in an organization, right? It's, it's unlocking that improvement potential. And if, I think if you asked an executive, hey, right now, if you could have a thousand problem solvers working on the, the strategy that you're trying to deploy, wouldn't that be better than just having one problem solver? And yeah. I think everyone, that, that would, everyone would say yes to that. Yeah. We, we did have a quick question that came in uh, via the Netherlands. What does C-suite mean? Um, the, the executive suite, the CEO, the COO, the CXO, as sometimes people say. So the, that top level of the chief um, executive senior leadership team in, in an organization. A question that shouldn't wait to Q&A. Well, we'll yeah, we'll go ahead and address that now. <laughs> and it's great. We, all, we have somebody I know on the line from Brazil as well. So it's, it's thank you to everybody around the world for tuning in. So we also want to talk a little bit about the idea of gaining buy-in for Kinexus, um, the process that our customers go through and trying to build buy-in um, for not just continuous improvement, but for the use of technology. And we use a lot of the exact same principles that we've been discussing. And what, what's so interesting, Mark, is I, I hadn't realized just how much we had been really thinking about buy-in until this webinar topic kind of forced me to do reading and realizing because at the end of the day, one of the things that I really, really like about our sales process and about our implementation process is that we're really focused on the need. I mean, we go right. we literally talk to people and they describe the need of what they're trying to do. And sometimes right at the beginning, we're like, hey, I don't actually think Kinexus is, is um, what you guys are looking for at this point in your organization. Yeah. And, and really trying to figure out, you know, a sales process should, shouldn't be about trying to convince someone of something they shouldn't need, but really try to figure out, you know, what is the best thing for that organization or that person to, yeah. you know, get the goals that they we, want to establish. We ask ourselves and our customers, what problem are you trying to solve? Right. And there's times where it turns out people say, yeah, your technology is great, but for us right now, right. we don't need that. And so, well, okay, you know, we're here to help people improve and to spread improvement. That's really what we're trying to impact. So, so to prep for this, we asked um, uh, Jeff Roussel and Ryan Confer, the VP of Sales and um, and Customer Service, to say, well, what are some of the strategies? How do you guys think through this as y'all are walking through this? And and one of the things that that we as an organization um, love. And, and really believe in is, you know, starting with why Simon Sinek's entire belief system, whether you're, um, whatever you're doing in an organization, I think this is a really fun and, and great read in general, right. but really starting to understand, you know, so what, what problem are, are you trying to solve and really trying to communicate what, where do you want to be versus, um, you know, what do you want to do to get there? That's a, a variation on the, hey, let's go do lean versus <laughs> let's work on patient flow. Let's work on, you know, delivering the product on time. Let's work on making your lives easier. And having a plan, right? The, the concept of, of recognizing that you aren't going to be able to, Jamie Flinchball talks about this so well. Right. Don't go into a meeting or a conversation and think, oh, I'm going to convince someone in 15 minutes of uh, something that's going to be really, really mind, you know, or, or lifestyle altering in what they're doing, but really art, articulate or in the back of your mind, have a plan and get people to say kind of the small yeses and to have small little changes. And then, and then recognizing that everyone is going to take on information differently. Everyone's going to have aha moments right. in a different way and recognizing that um, you shouldn't get frustrated when you're when you're seeing either that resistance or that um, kind of people quote aren't getting it right 
And I think there, you know, there's another point to add where Jeff was saying, you know, have a plan. So when you look at change management models, the early steps of the model are involved helping people see the challenge or the crisis or the opportunity or the quote unquote burning platform. And if all you do is help people see that reality, you've just scared them or riled them up. Like you've got to be able to follow it up with a compelling vision and a plan. It says, here's what we're going to do about it. You know, those two pieces are very important. Not just jumping into the plan, right. but not focusing only on the problem and then leaving it hanging. You've got to figure right. out and articulate, well, here's what we think is going to help uh, address that need. And another final point that they brought up, which I thought was was really great is knowing your audience and um, Jeff brought up, are you talking about someone that, you know, is a, a risk minimizer is a, um, a potential maximizer. I think you can also apply this to what Alan mentioned, which mm -hmm. is, you know, what's keeping your C-suite um, uh, up at night. You can look at this to, if you're talking to someone on the front lines, you know, what are the problems you're facing in your day to day? So you really need to frame, everything in the language of your audience, but really understanding your audience. And that gets back to respect, right? Mm -hmm. you, you won't understand or know your audience if you aren't respecting them. Right. I mean, those are hand in hand. Yeah. So as, as we wrap up here, kind of the final thing we want to cover is how do you gauge or measure the progress that people are making or, or an organization is making? So if we ask or we frame the problem as a lack of buy-in, that sounds like a binary equation. You either have buy-in or you don't. When I think really buy-in is a spectrum and it's a process. You can be a little bit bought into something. It's true. We can get more bought in. It's not a light switch that flips. And so we ask, well, how do we know what kind of progress we're making? And is there a process for getting there? And it's especially not a light switch when you're thinking about, we're talking about organizational buy-in, right? Organizations are made out of a whole bunch of humans. Right. And so each one of those humans is going to have their own process to buy in. Sure, there'll be patterns, but um, you know, kind of keep in mind that this is, is definitely not a binary answer here. Yeah. So one thing that I think is helpful to look at, and this could be a whole separate webinar, um, and there's workshops that I do and we can bring to you via Kinexus on change management. You can think of change management as a process. Help people understand the need for change, enlist a core change team, develop a vision and strategy, and then to the broader organization, help create a sense of urgency and motivate people, communicate that vision, take action, and then try to consolidate or, if you will, sustain your gains. You know, that this is a process that build-in is created by bringing people through this, not just saying, we're gonna jump to step, step six, and say, okay, act, buy in, you have to agree with this. You really need to bring an organization, and like Greg said, the people in that organization through a process like this. There's a simulation that we use in this change management workshop that it's unrealistic in the sense that you see this illustration of different stakeholders in an organization. Nobody walks around an organization with a magic number bubble over their head to look and say, oh, they're 20% bought in right now. You have no idea. Now, maybe you can gauge it by their body language and what they're saying. Um, are they arms crossed and scowling? But I think you know, the point of you know, the simulation and this illustration is that organizational buy-in, like Greg said, is an accumulation of individual 
buy-in. And it's not a simple sum. You know, if everybody in the organization is bought in, but one key stakeholder is very upset about it, that will drag down organizational buy-in in, in a very real and practical sense. The other thing that I think is interesting just as a framework is a model called ADCAR, and it's an acronym. We'll go through this briefly. But you know, I think ADCAR and change management models help us understand that buy-in is very personal, that within a team, within an organization, different individuals move along at their own pace, and that we need to recognize that and realize, again, it's not binary, yes or no, for individuals or a broader organization. As John Cotter says, change is a process, not an event. It's not the flipping of a switch. And the ADCAR model says that there's five milestones that every individual has to go through in order to change or in order to buy into a change. It starts with awareness, desire, then it works into knowledge, and then we need to turn knowledge into ability to change and then reinforce that change. So we can sort of self-assess or do stakeholder analysis and ask, well, okay, Greg, we're still trying to build awareness. And somebody else, they have awareness, but now we're working on desire. I think this is a helpful framework. And if you can kind of understand if awareness is lacking, we need to address that and think of this as sort of a sequential change process. What's really interesting about this, it ends with reinforcement, mm -hmm. right? And, and we see that also um, in, if, we're, if the topic is going to be continuous improvement, we, we see that with organizations that, that we're speaking with that said, oh, you know, we, in 2012, we were doing great work and then things fell off. And then you start analyzing, well, why did things fall off? Well, because we stopped focusing on it. We stopped, you know, bringing it up. People develop habits and, and they don't just go into perpetuity, right? Mm -hmm. you know, entropy brings into the system. There's competing things for your time. So uh, keep in mind that while you might be spending less time of your day in the reinforcement period, it probably is never going to go away. Yeah. And, and that's where this is not just an event. It's an ongoing process. process. Exactly. So, you know, this idea of buy-in to wrap up, I think one of the key questions we can ask are, are you selling? Are you pushing? Are you forcing? Or are you engaging people? The more that we engage, the more that we communicate, the more that we understand the perspective of others, the more that we lead, the more likely we are to get to a point like this, and I've seen this in organizations where people can love change, not just oh, resist or accept, but people really can love change. And what they love is the participation in that change. Yeah, I will never forget talking to another ER doctor and them asking, oh, well, what do you do with Kinexus? And, and her face just completely lighting up and yeah. saying, oh, when I was in residency, um, it was it was Beaumont, the Beaumont Hospital System. Yeah. I, I I did my residency, and they were doing such great work with this. And and if if I would give her an emoji, this would be the emoji <laughs> I would give her. Yeah. Um. So, but people really can absolutely love this. Yeah. Really, uh, second to none when you work in an organization that's doing this well. Yeah. And we hope everyone could experience that. Yes. At some point, everyone can. The beauty of it is, this isn't a bell curve kind of thing. Literally, every place in the world could be like this. Right. Yeah. And we want to help you get there. <laughs> so our next webinar, um, we'll take a pause and allow more questions to come in. Our next webinar is going to be on Tuesday, March 15th. Uh, Jacob Stoller is the author of an excellent book called The Lean CEO, where he interviewed 
dozens of chief executive officers in different industries, manufacturing, healthcare, different types of settings, and really kind of summarized a lot of great thoughts around how a, a lean CEO thinks or somebody that's trying to help their organization become lean. So I'd encourage you, you know, read the book or, or the webinar will be an introduction to that. I think we'll have a great uh, discussion with Jacob. We'd encourage you to look at some other resources, our webinar library, our blog, as Greg mentioned. We have podcasts now too. You can find a link to that on the webinar page. And with that, we will go ahead and address uh, some questions. And again, thank you for being here with us today. Let's hop into it. Uh, here is a question. Maybe Greg, you can address this a question from Margo. Physicians are very busy, so thank you for saying we could meet with them on their time schedules. Uh, bit by bit, I'm making progress on my projects, but thought uh, perhaps a lean practitioner would frown on that practice, I guess, of that practice of working with people. Um, so, yeah, she's saying that as a result of her approach, physicians are, are freeing up time to meet. And if it takes longer, that's good because you might make that progress. So. Um, Greg, uh, I guess it was more of a statement than a question, it turns right. out, but what, what's your reaction to that? I mean, my reaction is it's probably the only way it's going to happen. Um, if you are going to, to force physicians to kind of work on your schedule, I think that, one, you're not respecting. Two, you're not treating them like a customer. Um, and, and three, I think you're just ultimately going to fail. And so figuring out ways in which they can engage in a process and start creating buy-in from there, what you end up actually seeing is physicians realizing, oh, wait a minute, I can actually get more done if I spend 5% of all of the time of what I do to make what the other 95% more efficient. Mm -hmm. So it actually will end up kind of, we always talk about this, you know, right. you, if you're going from fire to fire or if you're always doing work and you're never improving work, you're never going to get better at doing the work. Right. And so right. if you can give people just a little bit of taste of actually, you know, solving problems can make them more efficient, can either make them see more patients or it can get them home at a better time with right. less stress. It, it's going to definitely work. So big kudos to, yeah. to recognizing this. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything that goes against lean principles in doing smaller batches of improvement or thinking of physicians as an important uh, internal customer or stakeholder and doing what you need to accommodate their participation. It's better than not having them participate. Right. Um, here's another question uh, from Jenna. As consultant to, cl to clinicians, what is the best way to frame the need for change? I often run into obstacles where clinicians are so in the weeds of their everyday work, it's hard to help them see the big picture. What are your thoughts, Greg? I really think that, that the opening for all of this has to be about when they're in the weeds, what are their frustrations, right? Because what you're really trying to do is just get their ear enough for them to pull out of the weeds for a second and to engage with you because at the end of the day, what we really want are physicians to engage with, if we can use the term, the improvement scientists of the organization. And to become improvement scientists and become, eventually. Exactly. Yeah. And, and what's really interesting, we've talked about this a lot, but um, physicians are oftentimes natural lean thinkers. Mm -hmm. So it takes a lot less time once you start really talking about the real principles of lean for them to get, quote, bought in but it does, it does require them to engage in the conversation. Yeah. So another question, it says, uh, 
there are cases where in, uh, when trying to create buy-in, you face people who listen only to top management. And in situations like these, the approach often used is escalation. What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I, I think I would start by asking why. Why are there people who only listen to top management? Is it because middle management is not doing a good job of articulating the need for change. If that's true, maybe executives, I could see scenarios where executives jump in and um, quote unquote solve the problem rather than helping and coaching the middle managers. You know, if the executive comes in and articulates it versus helping others articulate it, I think maybe sometimes this happens where um, those capabilities aren't being developed and, and we need to maybe wean people off of that, um, that habit of only listening to the executives or the habit executives might have of saying, well, it's all going to come from me in a top down from the very top way. Right. right. And, and I to validate this, I don't know who it was that put in the comment was, or the question. Uh, Louise. Louise. I mean, I agree. I think what we've seen is organizations that we're working with, the ones that are the most successful have um, quote, a lot of buy-in from senior leaders. And so I think if an organization is, is working like that, one of the things I might think of is, okay, well, I, I, need, to, I need to sell up, if you will. Mm -hmm. I need to go ahead and get the top level buy-in. And that's ultimately gonna, gonna create you know, that currency, that change management currency that you're looking for. So I think yeah. if you're being invalidated because of that, um, that might be the approach is just to say, hey, let's, let's, go, let's go focus on a, utilizing the, the frameworks that we just gave in this webinar. Yeah. Um, how do we go get that senior level, the senior leader buy-in? Yeah. There's a question from Josh. How can leaders succeed without a psychology degree? Well, that's fine. <laughs> I, I, I'm an engineer and I, I have an MBA. And even with those disadvantages, <laughs> you know, um, I've tried to, um, you know, as I get through my career, uh, become more attuned to, to people and, understanding uh, what people's motivations are and, and you know even dr deming gets labeled as a statistician mm -hmm. i think well that's not really the right label dr deming said of all the things leaders need to understand psychology was the most important factor we need to understand individuals maybe some of that is just developed through time and experience hopefully we have good mentors uh, it doesn't require the degree. It's more practical than that. Right. But wait, Greg, what are your thoughts? My, my thoughts immediately were you definitely should not stop learning after your degree. Mm -hmm. And I think you can become an expert in something without a degree as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I probably would say that um, you're not going to be a good leader without having a pretty good understanding perhaps not at a you know i have a certain title but without a certain understanding of, of the type of principles that we're talking about and if you re i i, I talk about it all the time i, I call it organizational psychology um it, right. it's it, and if you think about a lot of the books that we talk about over and over start with why um dry by daniel pink that the the power of habit these are i mean a lot of these are psychology books and just because you're not in school or 
you're you're not working towards a you know um, a master's degree or po- postgraduate degree doesn't mean that you can't become a an expert in something. Yeah, well, and I've said only half jokingly. If I were to ever go get another degree, mm-hmm. it would be in family therapy. <laughs> and I'm not saying I want a career as a family therapist. Right. I think I'm not suited to that. But in, in the past year, I've been reading books about change and psychology. There's a, a field called family systems theory, which is incredibly helpful in terms of the workplace. There's an approach called motivational interviewing, mm-hmm. which is really focused on, it was developed as a way of curing, helping people cure themselves of addiction. And it, it applies really well to the workplace where mm-hmm. you can say, sometimes I think people are addicted to their old behaviors and they might say, yeah, I want to change. They might have awareness and desire, mm-hmm. but they don't have the knowledge of how to change. And so fields like that are um, helping kind of flesh out some of my knowledge, where, as opposed to reading more books written by engineers. No offense to other right, engineers. Right, right, right. I think that that what's interesting is my journey in the continuous improvement world with founding a software company, moving in that direction. I mean, I've read design books mm-hmm. in the last five years. Um, certainly all of the, the business books that we're talking about and um, I've, I've read a lot of um, books and uh, consumed other content about startups and, you know, s- software as a subscription startup. So to me, you know, life is such a beautiful opportunity to continue to, to gain knowledge about other topics. And what's really interesting is when you can take cross-disciplinary knowledge. And, and I think that's where real interesting connections occur. It's, right. you know, I did not come from a family um, of, of physicians. I came from a family of entrepreneurs and business people, went down the phys- phys- physician route, and I'm, I'm applying some of the knowledge I learned um, from the, you know, healthcare space into all of a sudden now an entrepreneurial way. So I would say go get a um, informal degree and start learning it because if you want to be a great leader, um, kind of understanding all these principles, I think, are going to become hugely valuable. Great. Now, we have one last question, and Greg, we only have about 30 seconds to mention. Yeah. It deserves more than this. It's a meaty question. I won't say who. We've been implementing Lean for almost three years, and people on the floor, employees, don't have buy-in because we've been going against all the principles that you explained here today. I'm sorry <laughs> to hear that. My question is, do you have any advice to recover uh, that confidence uh, to, to help get people to buy in. My, I, I would say, uh, and this happens, let's say, if people have had suggestion boxes instead of an effective continuous improvement approach, I think at some point leaders have to say, okay, time out, we're going to take a pause, we're going to acknowledge what's not been working, and be humble enough to say, I'm sorry, we've made some mistakes, we're going to try to start again. That's really, it's easier said than done, but I, I think that's a very important step. And with the fact that we only have 30 seconds, the word honesty was coming to mind yeah. with that. And that's essentially what you said. Mm-hmm. I mean, if being honest to the people that you were rolling over and kind of explaining that, I think people really can really relate to that. All right. Well, well said, Greg. And uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap up. I want to thank everybody. Um, from across North America and around the world for uh, tuning in. We'll remind you again, our next webinar will be with Jacob Stoller on March 15th, author of The Lean CEO. You can go to kinexus.com slash webinars and you can uh, see information about how to sign up for that. And Greg and I are also doing another Ask Us Anything. Uh, Gosh, what date is that coming up? 
Um, You'll get an email about you'll it. You'll get an email about that, our video um, Q&A chat series. Um, so again, on behalf of Greg and the entire team at Kinexus, thank you for being with us today.